0: Thank you for listening to the Institute of World Politics podcast. To learn more about our graduate programs in national security, international affairs, and intelligence, or to support our work in educating future leaders, please visit www.iwp.edu. Good afternoon,
1: everyone. Good afternoon, Dr. Krenik. Welcome to the Asian Asia Lecture Series. My name is Amanda Wan and I'm the founder and coordinator of the Asian Asian Lecture Series at the Institute of World Politics. For those who are new to the Institute of War Politics, IWP is a Graduate School of Statecraft, National Security, International Affairs, and Intelligence. We have a doctoral program as well as five master's programs, and 18 certificates of graduate study and a continuing education program. The objective of of this lecture series is is to broaden the scope and discussion on a range of intelligence, foreign policy, and security issues attendant to the Asian geopolitical, socioeconomic, and cultural spheres of influence. Today, we have Dr. Matthew Krenig, who will be presenting a lecture on his book, The Return of Great Power Rivalry. Dr. Krenig is the Deputy Director of the Scoutcroft Center for Strategy and Security at the Atlantic Council and the Director of the Center's Global Security Global Strategy Initiative. He's also a tenured Professor of Government and Foreign Service at Georgetown University. A 2019 study in Perspectives on Politics ranked him one of the top 25 most cited political scientists of his generation. He's the author or editor of seven books, including The Return of Greg Power Rivalry*, Democracy Versus Autocracy from the Ancient World to the U.S. and China, and The Logic of Nuclear, American Nuclear Strategy. Dr. Koenig, thank you very much for joining us today, and I'll hand it over to you.
0: Great, well, thank you very much, um, Amanda. Thank you very much for the Institute of World Politics for hosting tonight's event, uh, and thanks to all of you for, um, for tuning in. Um, So as was mentioned, I'm here to talk about my new book, uh, The Return of Great Power Rivalry, Democracy Versus Autocracy from the Ancient World to the U.S. and China. Uh, And as many of you know, the um, um, return of great power rivalry, return of great power competition was called out in the 2017 national security strategy um, of the United States as the greatest threat to the national security and economic well-being of the United States and its allies. Um, And there's something of a conventional wisdom going around Washington, at least, that um, maybe the United States is in trouble uh, in this competition, uh, that uh, our democracy is is weak, uh, fragmented, polarized, and um, Russia and China have these efficient autocratic systems. They can make big strategic decisions, plan for the long term, uh, and that uh, maybe the United States needs to uh, accommodate itself to not being the world's leading power living in a more multipolar world, perhaps over time even living in a Chinese-led international system. Um, So I was skeptical of these claims. It's one of the things that motivated me to write this book. uh, And indeed in this book, I come to a different conclusion uh, that um, democracies have excelled in great power competition uh, for the past 2,500 years and that the United States and its allies are actually well positioned uh, to maintain um, their international leadership role. Um, so that's what I want to talk about over the next um, 40 minutes or so, and then um, very much look forward to Q&A and discussion. So um, if I can, I'd like to share, uh, share some slides to guide us through the discussion. Um, hope you can all um, see that. There's the cover of the book. And, um, you know, the, uh, the, one of the key uh, kind of policy questions is will the United States retain its position as the leading state in the world? Uh, The United States has been the most powerful country on earth, uh, according to most measures, since World War II. Um, And and this really raises a bigger question, which is, what do we know about why major powers like the United States are able to maintain their position uh, atop the international system? And what do we know about why they decline, why they're overtaken by other challengers? And again, just to preview where we're going, I argue that the answer is that um, democracies are better able to amass power and wealth in the international system, more likely to become major powers, more likely to become the leading state in the system, uh, less likely to be dislodged once they do become the leading state. Uh, And if that's correct, then uh, again, we can expect that the United States will retain its leadership position for the foreseeable future. Um, So the return of of great power rivalry, and you are all probably familiar with this um, story, but. Uh, You know, Great power competition has been a part of international politics since the beginning of recorded human history, going all the way back to the Greeks and the Persians, uh, all the way through the Cold War. Uh, But we did have this remarkable 25-year period after the end of the Cold War, and until 2014 or so, uh, where we essentially had the absence of great power competition. And it's really hard to imagine now if you look back to the 2010 national security strategy of President Obama, Um, Never once does that strategy mention Russia or China as possible threats. Uh, It only mentions them as possible partners for cooperation on things like arms control, nonproliferation, climate change. Uh, But the world has changed quite a bit in the past uh, 11 years. Uh, Beginning with Russia uh, in 2014, we saw Russia invade Ukraine, make threats, including nuclear threats uh, against the rest of NATO and the United States. Uh, It intervened militarily in Syria, re-establishing itself as a power broker in the Middle East for the first time since the 1970s, Uh, and it's used information, uh, disinformation, election interference, and other uh, propaganda techniques to weaken and undermine um, NATO and Western democracies. And so some people fear that Russia is dead set on disrupting uh, the the U.S.-led international order that we've essentially lived in since 1945. Uh, The even bigger threat comes from China. Uh, And about the same time period – well, really, over the past several decades, China has had enormous uh, economic growth, Uh, currently has the second largest economy on Earth after the United States, and many economists predict that it could overtake the United States as the world's leading economy uh, within the next decade or so. Um, It's been investing that economic um, – those economic gains into military hardware, shifting the balance of power in East Asia. And now many U.S. defense planners wonder, can the United States still defend Taiwan in a major conflict with China? Um, China is using that military power to take contested territory in the South China Sea. And you can see an image here of its island-building campaign uh, in the South China Sea. Uh, And it's also using its economic uh, might to increase its diplomatic heft around the world with One Belt, One Road Initiative uh, and other tools. And the Belt and Road Initiative is ostensibly a of a plan to resurrect old Silk Road trading routes through infrastructure investment uh, in Eurasia, Southeast Asia, and elsewhere. Uh, But really, it's kind of a Chinese grand plan to uh, increase its geopolitical influence in every uh, region of the world. And so if people fear that Russia is trying to disrupt uh, the U.S.-led system, um, that they also fear that China is really seeking to displace it, uh, to set up a a Chinese-centric world order. Um, So will they succeed? And um, as was mentioned before, I think some think that they will succeed, that uh, we um, don't have our own house in order uh, and that these um, autocratic uh, powers are are efficient and ruthless uh, competitors. Um, So is that the case? Um, Oh, just to... um say that you know, we were a little bit slow to awaken to this challenge, but by um, 2017 in the national security strategy, 2018 in the national defense strategy, uh, the U.S. government did say this is the top priority. I don't know if you saw, but just today the Biden administration released some interim strategic guidance, a kind of mini national security strategy, and uh, in there they also say that the greatest state-based threat to the United States comes from China this isn't just Trump, there's a bipartisan consensus, that this is the biggest challenge, uh, state-based challenge facing the country. Um, so what do we know about whether democracies or autocracies do better in great power competition? Uh, this is kind of the uh, requisite slide in an academic presentation to say, there's been a lot of related literature, uh, but nothing really on this question. Uh, believe it or not, um, the whether democracies or autocracies are better able to dominate the world, Um, hasn't been a major source of um, recent social science research. Um, It is a question, though, that older uh, political theorists were interested in, of earlier generations. Um, So Polybius, Montesquieu, Machiavelli all wrote about the advantage of uh, democratic or, um, as they called them, republican uh, forms of government. Uh, And um, Machiavelli may be the one, if, if you know Machiavelli, that is surprising to some people. And uh, Machiavelli is probably best known for uh, really his handbook for dictators, The Prince, where he recommends any means, no matter how ruthless, for a prince to rule in a turbulent and and violent era. Um, But but I know Machiavelli pretty well. One of my hardship posts at Georgetown is I teach a two-week course in Florence, Italy every summer on Machiavelli. And Machiavelli uh, wrote another book, Discourses on Livy, which I think is his greater work. And in the discourses on uh, Libby, Machiavelli basically gives a full-throated defense of Republican forms of government. Uh, And he was fascinated by ancient Rome uh, and the question of how did Rome rise from being a small city-state on the Tiber River to dominating the entire Mediterranean Basin. Uh, And essentially, he argues that the answer is Rome's Republican form of government. Uh, that uh, Republican institutions are better able to harness the energies of a population towards um, state expansion, uh, and Polybius and Montesquieu um, make similar arguments about the rise of Rome. Uh, and so, this is um, you know new to new to some people. I think we often think of Rome as this dominant empire uh, led by uh, the Caesars, but um, uh, by the emperors, but. Um, Uh, You know, Machiavelli and uh, others have pointed out that really its greatest expansion of power came under the Republic, and then it was after the transition to empire that Rome began um, its decline. Um, So while um, scholars recently haven't thought about how, um, uh, uh, you know, what gives rise to international dominance, I I decided I would try to update some of these arguments for a new era and take a step back and say, okay, what allows a country to become a, a major power? What allows it to become the leading state in the international system and just make some common sense assumptions Uh, in order for a country to be strong internationally, it has to have a strong economy, a strong diplomacy and a strong military. Um, Strong economy might make sense. If you have a large economy, you can use that economic power to uh, promise trade and investment to your friends. Uh, You can also uh, threaten to hurt your enemies, cut off trade, cut off investments with sanctions, tariffs, or or other tools. Um, Having a large economy is also important because it allows you to invest in military power, what may be the most important resource in an anarchic uh, international system. Uh, If you have a strong military, you can promise to protect your friends, uh, but again, you can threaten to to hurt your enemies. Uh, And then having strong diplomacy is an important part of international leadership as well. Uh, most things are easier if you have a lot of friends and allies and partners, and international politics is more uh, no different. Uh, and moreover, if um, the rest of the world is ganging up on you, standing in your way, uh, forming counterbalancing coalitions against you, uh, hard to achieve what you want to achieve in international politics. Uh, you know, just look at Napoleon and Hitler for um, examples uh, of that. Um, so in short, um, you, know, you have to be strong economically, diplomatically, and militarily. Are um, democracies or autocracies better able to do this? Um, So one of the other things I do at Georgetown is I teach a PhD seminar on advanced international relations theory. Uh, And This course focuses on social science research done in the past 20 years or so. And um, while social scientists haven't theorized the sources of uh, global dominance directly, uh, they have really been obsessed with this question of are democracies different? Um, Do democracies behave differently when it comes to narrower outcomes uh, economically, uh, diplomatically, and militarily? And essentially the finding has been that yes, democracies are different, and they seem to be at least a little bit better than autocracies uh, in a number of areas. Uh, And so really in this book I have the advantage of standing on the shoulders of giants and aggregating up a lot of these smaller findings into a bigger argument about the fitness of democracies in international politics. Um, So what are some of these democratic advantages? And uh, just go through um, quickly, but uh, first, uh, social scientists and economists have identified a number of economic advantages. Um, So Daron Achimoglu and James Robinson are two um, political economists um, who've argued that democracies tend to have higher long-run rates of economic growth. Uh, They tend to put in place better economic institutions, things like protections on property rights, courts that can actually enforce business contracts, Um, Basically, they just set the rules of the game so that people have an incentive to participate in economic activity. Um, On the other hand, they say that autocracies um, don't tend to put in place good economic institutions. Uh, They tend to put in place institutions that benefit the dictator or people around him and her, uh, but not a broad cross-section of society. And so if those are the rules of the game, why invest in a business if um, the government might seize it from you? Uh, Why invest in economic um, activity if courts are too corrupt to uh, enforce your contracts? Um, So they essentially argue that autocracies don't put in place the incentives that encourage long-run growth. Um, They also argue that democracies are better at innovation. Uh, They encourage um, human capital, thinking outside the box, risk-taking entrepreneurship uh, that leads to the major breakthroughs. Um, but thinking outside the box, risk taking is, is discouraged in autocracies. It's a good way to land yourself in trouble with the authorities. Uh, and so uh, again, doesn't uh, these kind of systems don't often encourage breakthrough uh, innovations. Um, also, a lot of political economy research about how democracies are more open to international trade according to almost any measure. Um, higher proportion of their GDP come from imports and exports, more trade agreements, fewer tariffs and non-tariff barriers, um, and we've known since the time of Adam Smith and David Ricardo that um, there are advantages to the specialization uh, that comes from international trade, uh, advantages that democracies are better positioned to take care of. Uh, you know, basically democracies are just more comfortable with goods, services, people, ideas uh, flowing across their borders. Um, autocrats like control, uh, including controlling what's coming across their borders. So they tend to put in place higher tariffs uh, and barriers to trade uh, and investment. Um, This democratic advantage also uh, extends to international finance, and I would just ask those of you listening, how many of you have retirement accounts, Uh, and how many of you are investing in the United States, Uh, and how many of you are investing in Russia and China? And I'm guessing I I know the answer. You probably have a lot of money in the S&P 500 and, and U.S. Treasury bonds. Probably don't have much in Russia and China. Uh, and the same is true for uh, Russians and Chinese. Wealthy Russians and Chinese are buying property in the United States, trying to get the wealth uh, out of that country. Uh, same is true of the Chinese government. Um, what do they do with the um, uh, the wealth they're getting from uh, uh, international trade Well, they're, they're buying uh, U.S. Treasury bonds? Uh, they think putting their uh, wealth uh, in the U.S. government is the safest uh, investment uh, on Earth. Um, so basically, investors uh, trust um, democracies with their with their wealth, and they don't trust um, autocracies. And so if you look through history, the centers of international finance have always been in more open Republican uh, systems, starting with the ancient Venetian Republic during the Italian Renaissance, uh, which was arguably the first kind of global capital of capital, um, all the way to uh, Wall Street and, and the city of London today. Um, so in short, some serious economic advantages, higher long-run rates of growth, Uh, more innovative, more trade, and uh, better financial systems. Um, What about uh, diplomacy? Let me say one thing about uh, economics because we'll come back to this later. Um, Well, people might be saying, well, what about China? Isn't this an exception? And what Robinson, Achimoglu, and others have argued is that, uh, no, it's not really an exception that autocracies through state planning have shown themselves to be pretty good at reallocating resources from unproductive areas to more productive areas for short periods of time, getting short bursts of growth. Uh, But then once those advantages have been um, uh, realized, then the state has to make the the next bet. Uh, And that um, historically, um, state-led planning has been poor at making those bets, not as good as uh, market, market economies. And so Robinson and Achimoglu, among others, think the Chinese economic model is running out of steam. Um, What about diplomatically, a political science research that shows that democracies are uh, better able to build alliances? And, and, you know, just think about the NATO alliance compared to, um, you know, any of Russia's alliances, really, the Molotov-Ribbentrop Pact, its alliance with China, the Warsaw Pact. Um, NATO has been um, long-lasting, a large alliance, over 30 members. Uh, When the United States was attacked on 9-11, countries actually came to each other's defense, um, that's not the way autocracies uh, work in alliances. Um, uh, they're not good at building alliances. Um, uh, so I mentioned Russia. It, it signed an alliance with Nazi Germany during World War II, and then they fought a war uh, against each other. It uh, signed an alliance with the Warsaw Pact countries, and then it invaded two of its Warsaw Pact members, uh, Hungary and Czechoslovakia. Uh, signed an alliance with China, nearly fought a nuclear war with China. Um, after the end of the Cold War, set up the Commonwealth of Independent States. Uh, And then it invaded two of the members of the Commonwealth of Independent States, uh, Georgia and Ukraine. Um, So when a democratic ally says, um, you know, we're we're allies, you can uh, rest assured for the most part that they'll have your back. And when autocracies say the same things, um, you you better watch your back. Um, And and this is true not just of alliances but international commitments more broadly. Um, Political scientists have very few um, firm laws but one of them is that uh, we know that democracies are more likely to sign and keep international commitments of all types, trade agreements, human rights agreements, um, security um, agreements. Um, nuclear nonproliferation treaty is what a I know pretty well. I have a background in nuclear strategy. Um, nine times countries have signed the NPT and cheated and tried to build secret nuclear weapons programs. Um, all nine times uh, they were autocracies. Um, Iran, Iraq, Libya, Syria, etc, never once has a democracy, signed the NPT and uh, cheated. Um, democracies also have more soft power, a term coined by a professor at Harvard Joe Nye, uh, that basically means you're attractive to other countries, you have an attractive culture, policies. Um, the University of Southern California keeps a ranking, the soft power 30, um, of the 30 countries in the world with the most soft power, according to USC. Um, the top 20 are all democracies. Um, Russia and China make the list, but they're near the bottom, uh, 27 and 30. I think the United States is currently at number four. Um, It wasn't number one uh, under Obama, it slipped to number four under Trump. Uh, We'll see, I suspect it will um, climb back up those rankings. Um, and, And an argument I make here that I haven't seen before, but it's something I came out in doing the research for this book, Uh, is that it seems like democracies are able to amass wealth and power and other countries don't get nervous. Uh, But the same is not true of autocracies. When autocracies start to accrue power, other countries start to get nervous, they start to balance against them. And I think we've seen that uh, from Xerxes to Napoleon to Hitler, and I think we're seeing it with the Chinese Communist Party um, today. Uh, Finally, what are the military advantages that democracies have? Uh, Again, I'm standing on the shoulders of giants, but political scientists have looked at which countries have won the wars they fought from 1815 to the present. uh, And they found that democracies empirically are more likely to win their wars. Uh, Democracies have won something like 75% of the wars they fought since 1815. Uh, The corresponding number for autocracies is only about 48%. Um, Why is that the case? Uh, Two two possible explanations. One is that uh, democratic leaders make better decisions. Um, Not that they don't make mistakes, but that they um, are are less likely to make big mistakes. Uh, Because they live in open societies, they're more likely to hear criticism from within their own governments, from other branches of government, uh, from the media. Um, So when leaders make big decisions about war and peace, they have a fairly good sense of what the costs and benefits are. Um, On the other hand, in a dictatorship, Um, uh, Dictators surround themselves with yes-men and women who tell them what they want to hear. Uh, And it wasn't uncommon for Saddam Hussein to literally shoot people in the head who gave him bad news. And and so that happens once or twice and you you don't hear bad news uh, anymore. The dictator says, I want to invade Russia in the winter. uh, And the people around him or her says, "Uh, great idea, uh, boss. Um, They also think that democratic soldiers might make more effective soldiers on the battlefield, uh, that they're more willing to take initiative. Uh, No plan survives first contact with the enemy, so can your officers adapt on the battlefield? Uh, They argue democratic soldiers can do that. Um, For autocratic soldiers, it's too dangerous. Uh, You don't want to be um, insubordinate. Much safer to just stay put and wait for orders from above than to take initiative. Um, I argue in this book that if democracies are more innovative in general, they may be more innovative when it comes to warfare, and I think I found uh, quite a bit of evidence for that. And then finally, perhaps the greatest strength democracies have is um, they don't have to spend enormous resources repressing their own people. Uh, And throughout history, we've seen that the greatest threat to dictators is their own people, uh, not the foreign enemy. Uh, And that's true today. The uh, Russians and the Chinese spend more on internal security than they do on their own militaries. Uh, for the United States, it's two to one in the other direction. Um, so you add all this up, and this is a pretty serious set of advantages for democracies. Uh, they have economic, diplomatic, and military strengths. Um, so this is kind of a schematic of, of the argument. And you know, often in the United States, we debate what is our greatest strength? Is it our um, power-projecting global superpower military? Um, is it our dynamic economy? Is it Silicon Valley and Wall Street? Um, or is it, you often hear it said that it's our alliances, it's our network of friends and allies around the world. Uh, my argument in the book essentially is that uh, really our greatest strength is our domestic political institutions. And those other things are, are reflections of our institutions. Uh, we have a strong economy, we have strong diplomacy, and we have a strong military uh, because of our uh, Republican form of government, uh, Republican with a, with a small arm. Now, there's been um, counter arguments uh, over the years. Plato argued that a philosopher king would be the best ruler. Uh, Alexander de Tocqueville was a big fan of democracy in America, but he thought that the United States would never be able to do foreign policy. Uh, He thought that foreign policy required secrecy, ruthlessness, uh, and that dictators are just better at that. Uh, And Henry Kissinger during the Cold War sometimes wondered uh, whether the Soviet Union would be more Um, efficient and ruthless a competitor than than the United States. And we're hearing a version of this um, autocratic advantage argument uh, today, at least I often hear it in Washington. Um, So they say uh, autocracies like President Xi and the Chinese Communist Party can make big, bold decisions, Uh, they can invest in green technology, they can invest in infrastructure. Uh, Meanwhile, in in the United States, we're uh, gridlocked, we're dysfunctional, we can't get anything done. Um, New York Times columnist Thomas Friedman had a column a few years ago called China for a Day, uh, where he basically made this point. And he said, wouldn't it be great if we could be China for a day? We could pull a lever and get things done, make investments in climate change, uh, but instead, uh, poor us, we're we're gridlocked, we can't get anything done. A second argument you hear is that autocracies are good at long-run planning, um, that in democracies we're focused on the next election two, four years away, Uh, Meanwhile, Russia, China, they have plans for 2035, plans for 2049. Uh, You know, they play Go and chess, and and we play checkers. Uh, They're just better strategists. Uh, The other argument you hear is the de Tocqueville argument. Uh, Democracies were too weak, were constrained by laws and norms, Uh, and autocracies can really take the gloves off in in a dangerous international system. They can lie, cheat, steal, assassinate, Uh, and it might be ugly, but they get things done. Um, and then finally, they argue that autocratic politics are, at least to the outside world, they seem stable, clean, efficient. President Xi seems firmly in control. Uh, meanwhile, uh, we've got impeachment hearings and, and scandals um, playing out you know, on a, a frequent basis. Um, so I argue in the book that, that these arguments essentially are wrong, uh, or that there are strong counterarguments to each of them. Um, so a big, bold decision is great so long as it's the right one. Um, if it's the wrong one, it means big, bold mistakes. Um, again, like invading Russia in the winter. Um, So the fact that we're polarized, uh, the flip side of that is it means we don't make big uh, mistakes. Um, Second, it's it's not true that autocracies are better at long-run planning. Uh, In fact, it's the opposite. Since dictators are unconstrained, they can bounce around from one failed policy to another. And I think we've seen that quite a bit uh, in China with Mao Zedong and uh, all the way up to President Xi. Uh, Meanwhile, I, I think democracies are actually more stable Uh, At charting a a long-run strategic course. And I argue in the book essentially that the United States has had the same strategic plan since 1945, a plan to build, uh, uh, revitalize, adapt and defend uh, this U.S.-led, rules-based international system. So that's a much more impressive strategic plan than China's Belt and Road Initiative or its Made in China 2035 initiative. These um, plans that have been around for a few years that many in the West see as you know, evidence of China's long-run strategic planning genius. Um, being unconstrained is, is, uh, has its advantages. It has its disadvantages as well. Uh, having a reputation for utter ruthlessness uh, has downsides. You know, we don't trust Russia when it says it's going to abide by arms control uh, treaties. We don't trust Russia when it says it's going to abide by ceasefires in Ukraine. Uh, and so we don't trust Russia when it says it has a COVID-19 vaccine. Um, even when it uh, is, is now coming out to some scientists saying it's uh, effective um, so there's a downside to, to another utter lack of credibility in international politics and the idea that autocratic politics are clean and efficient that's only the the image um, you know there's plenty of politicking going on it's just happening in backroom torture chambers um, the advantage of democracies is that we we uh, Let our differences and our political fights, uh, we're we're transparent, we let this play out uh, in public on on CNN. Final possibility, maybe there's no difference. Um, And realist international relations scholars have said, you know, it's a dangerous world. If one of these systems was better than the other, then in a kind of Darwinian struggle of survival, uh, one of them would have been eliminated and we'd only have one kind of government uh, in the world. Uh, So we have three possibilities, maybe democracies are better, maybe autocracies are better. Maybe neither is better. Um, So the next step then is turn to the evidence and see what we can find. And um, um, some political scientists have talked about uh, long cycle theories of international relations, basically the rise and fall of uh, great powers over time. Uh, And one of the leading studies uh, conducted in 1985 by Rassler and Thompson um, basically says that the leading state in the international system since 1609 uh, has been uh, a republic. Uh, among the most democratic countries on earth at the time. They say first the Dutch Republic, uh, then Great Britain, and since then the United States. Um, their study ended in 1985, but their students have updated it uh, to the present. Uh, so this is pretty impressive, an undefeated record for four centuries and counting. Uh, and, and what's remarkable to me is if you go back you know, even further, how rare democracies are, uh, but how often they end up coming out on top. Now, we often forget, but until World War II, there were only about a dozen democracies on Earth. Uh, Yet, if you look over the past 2,500 years of world history, ancient Athens, the Roman Republic, the Venetian Republic, the Dutch Republic, uh, Great Britain, the United States, uh, it always seems like there's a democracy at or near the top of the global pecking order, uh, even though these are pretty uh, rare forms of government. I also do some uh, statistical analysis, and for those of you who know political science, It's becoming more like economics in some ways, more like medicine, trying to quantify and and measure outcomes. And so political scientists have measures for um, how powerful a country is, uh, and they have measures for how democratic a country is. And so I I just took these two off-the-shelf measures and looked for some correlations uh, and found consistent with this idea that democracies do seem to hold more power in the world. Uh, So the first test I've said is, okay, for all democracies in the world from 1815 to 2010, how many of them possessed at least 1% of global power as measured by political scientists? Um, 28% of democracies met that threshold, only 20% of autocracies. Um, So statistically significant significant difference. I asked how many um, made it to the ranks of the major powers? Among all democracies, 16 percent became major powers, only 7 percent of autocracies. And then uh, same question for the leading uh, power, which country had the most power on earth? And in the years from 1815 to 2010, a democracy occupied that top spot in 84 percent of the years, um, with the Soviet Union and China breaking in in a few years because of the way uh, power is counted. Um, So some compelling evidence overall that democracies seem to amass more power. Um, But what might be most interesting to most people are some of the case studies. So I do seven cases of autocratic versus democratic rivalries, um, starting 2,500 years ago with the Greeks and the Persians, and coming all the way up to the uh, end of the Cold War. Uh, Now, obviously, in a short lecture today, I don't have time to go through all of these. If you're interested, uh, go to the book. Uh, But it was quite interesting to me that these um, more democratic countries uh, did pretty well uh, in their rivalries with autocracies. And for the precise reasons identified uh, in the theoretical framework, they tended to become trading powers, have innovative economies, uh, become centers of global finance, um, build uh, uh, strong alliances, uh, have powerful militaries, often powerful navies. Um, On the other hand, autocracies tended to do uh, pretty poorly. They did well for a while, but they often imploded, Uh, again, for a lot of the same reasons identified in this theoretical framework. Their economic growth models slowed, they had financial troubles, uh, the rest of the world ganged up against them in counterbalancing coalitions, uh, and they had military troubles. Either they started and lost disastrous military wars, um, or they had domestic insurrections that led to uh, regime uh, collapse. Uh, and so really, this study gave me a new appreciation of Western civilization. I really do think of uh, world history now is the kind of passing of the torch of these democratic superpowers um, from Athens to Rome to Venice to Amsterdam to London, and then onto its current resting place in Washington, D.C. Um, so again, can't go through all the uh, cases, but just uh, point out a few highlights. Again, the Roman Republic, it was really under the Republic, not under the Empire that you see this huge explosion in, in wealth and power. The Venetian Republic is interesting. I'd always thought of Venice as a kind of a quaint tourist destination, but in the 1200s, it was a superpower, probably the wealthiest city on earth, uh, the largest navy on earth, the center of global finance, uh, and was really more of a city empire, controlled territory throughout the Middle East uh, and into the Black Sea as far away as Russia. Um, Dutch Republic, a remarkable story. If you don't know about it, uh, I encourage you to read about it. Essentially, I think Great Britain and then the United States followed the Dutch Republic's model for being a uh, democratic superpower, center of global finance, uh, powerful navy, powerful trading country, uh, innovative uh, militarily, and we're more familiar with uh, England and uh, the United States. Uh, But getting to what's most interesting to most people, what does this mean for the current era of great power competition among the U.S., Russia, and China? Well, Russia is kind of an easy case for the argument. It's a prototypical example of a weak autocracy. Uh, And indeed, there's even a question about whether Russia belongs in a discussion of great powers. Um, Its economy is in pretty poor shape. It's it's smaller than Italy's and Spain's. Um, We don't consider Italy or Spain great powers, nor should we. Um, So economically, Russia is not a great power. Uh, Diplomatically, it's not a great power either. It doesn't have uh, allies and friends, as, as we've discussed. Um, It's been better at interfering in America's alliances, um, and that's worrisome, but um, Russia is not very good at building its own partnerships. Militarily is an area where Russia has punched above its weight, and I do worry about the Russian military threat to NATO, Uh, but there are real limits as to what Russia is going to be able to do because of its economic weakness, Uh, and indeed we've seen Russian military spending decline in each of the past several years. Um, So Russia can disrupt the U.S.-led system, but not in a position to really be a challenger, a peer challenger to the United States. Now, what about China? And this may be the hard case for the book. When I first started researching the book, people said, you know, you're crazy. China's a juggernaut. Uh, It's not going to slow down anytime soon. Uh, And indeed, we have seen China's economy grow, gaining influence, um, uh, investing in military power. But I think we're also now seeing the cracks in the system. Um, So, um, uh, you know, dictators economically have always preferred control over performance, and we're seeing that quite clearly with Xi today. Uh, He's prioritizing his control over the Chinese economy over performance. He's renationalizing major parts of the Chinese economy, um, backtracking on promised uh, liberalizing market reforms, and the Chinese economy is suffering because of it. Um, So economists say that China will overtake the United States in 10 years, Uh, What what many forget is that 10 years ago in 2010, um, economists were saying that China would overtake the United States in 2020. Okay, here we are in 2021, U.S. still has a healthy lead. Now economists are saying 2030. I suspect in 2030, they'll be saying 2040. And I suspect the real answer is never, uh, that China will never overtake the United States uh, as the world's leading economy. Um, Diplomatically, we're seeing the uh, kind of backlash we've seen against other dictators um, in the past. Um, um, number piece, uh, piece of evidence number one on this is the United States, after decades of trying to cooperate with China, has declared China uh, public enemy number one. Uh, other evidence uh, abounds, uh, the Quad uh, forming in Asia, Japan, India, Australia, and the United States um, forming this proto-alliance against China, uh, Europe declaring China systemic rival. I think we're seeing the rest of the world beginning to turn on China in the same way we've seen uh, seen it turn on other powerful dictators uh, in the past. Um, and militarily, um, China I think has real problems uh, with military innovation. Um, just to take one example I know well, um, nuclear weapons. You know, in the West we take it for granted that if a country wants a nuclear deterrent, it puts nuclear weapons on submarines, it sends them to sea, and it has this kind of survivable nuclear second strike capability. Um, China wanted to do that. It put its first submarine in the water in 1986. And here we are decades later, and China still doesn't do regular deterrence patrols. So this is a 1960s technology for the United States that China still can't figure out. Uh, And part of the reason for that is it simply doesn't trust its military officers to go to sea with nuclear weapons. It likes to keep centralized control of its nuclear weapons. Um, But the biggest military challenge that China faces is is it doesn't, um, uh, it's, it's afraid of its own people. And again, it's spending more on um, domestic security than on the PLA. Um, If you follow the money, China is more afraid of Uyghurs and um, protesters in Hong Kong uh, than it is of the U.S. Department of Defense. Um, So these are some pretty serious competitive weaknesses. Uh, So here's an example of one of China's Belt and Road Investments. Um, Here's the uh, data on China backtracking on uh, promised economic reforms under President Xi, uh, hurting the economy. Uh, here's this Chinese nuclear submarine that just sits at port, uh, doesn't go to sea. Uh, here's the biggest security threat to the CCP, not the Pentagon, um, uh, internal threats. And, and now let's come to the United States. And not to be Pollyannish, we have our problems. Uh, we've all seen uh, the problems, including on January 6th. But we often overlook our strengths. And the United States remains the world's largest economy, uh, remains the center of global finance. Uh, has been the world's innovation leader since the time of Thomas Edison. Um, Diplomatically, the United States has over 30 formal treaty allies, the 29 other members of NATO, Japan, Australia, uh, Korea, and others. Um, If it's just the United States against China, it's roughly 25% of global GDP to 16% of global GDP, uh, getting a little bit too close for comfort. Um, If you throw in America's allies though, we're we're almost uh, two thirds of global GDP. Uh, So a significant uh, preponderance of power still uh, over China uh, and still retain the world's um, only superpower, military. Uh, In fact, we forget this, but when we talk about the United States potentially losing a war to Russia and China, essentially what we mean is that Russia or China might attack a small weak U.S. ally um, in, in their own backyard and the United States would have a difficult war. Uh, and that's true, uh, but, you know, these aren't um, symmetrical situations. We're not worried about Russia or China projecting power into North America, um, uh, fighting the United States on its own territory. Um, So still a serious uh, military challenge that we need to worry about, uh, but neither of these countries are peer um, competitors. Uh, Just some of the data, U.S. still with the commanding lead and share of GDP. Other measures of wealth, actually, the United States gain over China is growing, Uh, still the innovation leader uh, militarily, uh, spending many times more uh, on its military than China and several other countries combined. Um, So to wrap up, what does this mean for how we think about um, international relations? I think uh, what it means for um, international relations theory is that often we think about democracy as being a good thing because it protects freedom and human rights, um, and that's true, but really this book makes the hard power case for democracy. Uh, that democracy is the best machine ever invented for generating enormous wealth and power uh, on the world stage. What does it mean for U.S. foreign policy? Well, I think a number of things. Um, First, it means that the United States, um, despite our problems, is well-positioned to be the world's most powerful country for the foreseeable future. Um, Second, this doesn't mean that there's nothing to worry about. I do think that Russia and China pose serious threats. Uh, And so the United States and its allies do need to defend against the threats that come from these um, second-rate powers, but still serious threats. You know, democracies beat um, Hitler in the end, but uh, we had to fight a world war to do it, and I think that is a possibility uh, this time as well. Um, Third, if um, our greatest strength is our institutions, then we do need to get our own house in order, and I do worry about um, American democracy. And so I think focusing at home so we can lead abroad um, is, is important. Fourth, um, contrary to this idea that we can't do strategic planning, I think we've done it quite well for the past 75 years. Um, This rules-based international system has been the best grand strategy uh, ever invented. Um, But it's not 1945, it's not 1991 anymore, so we can't stick to an old um, strategy. We need to revitalize and adapt it for a new era. Um, And if we want to get tougher with Russia and China, You know, often in the national security community, we think about where are we weak and where is the enemy strong? And that makes sense. We worry about our vulnerabilities, but I often think good strategy comes about from doing the opposite. Where are we strong? Where are they weak? And how can we stick it to them there? Uh, And this book does identify um, our strengths and their weaknesses for a more competitive uh, approach. And then finally, just to wrap up, you know, we worry about our um, hard policy problems uh, with good reason. But I would say that the harder problem really rests in Beijing and Moscow, and that President Putin and President Xi have a choice. Uh, If they want to cling to power, um, as it seems that they want to do, then um, that's fine, but they're gonna be destined to rule over dysfunctional second-rate powers. Um, Or if they truly want to be world leaders, as they say, then then the answer is obvious. Uh, They need to give up power, put in place the kind of democratic system uh, that we've seen has been a prerequisite for international leadership for the past 2,500 years. So I'll end my uh, remarks there and very much look forward to the Q&A and discussion.
1: Thank you very much, Dr. Krenig for a very insightful lecture and we'll take questions now. So the first question is actually from an IWP professor. During the Cold War, then Secretary of Defense, James Schlesinger, warned against the 10-foot-tall syndrome. That is viewing the Soviet Union as towering figures with overwhelming strength, intellect, and capabilities. Do you think uh, we are perhaps falling into the same dilemma as regards China?
0: A good question, and and that is a great quote. Um, I I should have used it in the book, but I didn't. Uh, And yes, I do think we're um, um, uh, falling into the same trap, uh, that we see um, China as this uh, unstoppable, uh, unstoppable economy that will become the world's leading economy, uh, that's gaining um, ground diplomatically, and uh, even in our own backyard of uh, Europe and North, uh, the Americas, uh, that's uh, militarily, um, as the National Defense Strategy Commission report said, may be able to defeat us in um, uh, the next major war. Um, and so I, I think we are right to worry about these uh, challenges, um, but um, you know, we need to have a balanced assessment. Uh, China has some real problems economically, diplomatically, and, and militarily. Uh, and um, if, if we want a good competitive strategy, we need to recognize um, those weaknesses and, and exploit those weaknesses. Um, so yes, I think we're falling into the same trap. Uh, we need to have a little bit of strategic uh, confidence. We we have enormous strengths. Uh, and in the book, I ask the reader, um, whose hand would you rather play? Um, if you had to play great power competition. Uh, in short, yes, I think that's a danger. We need a need a balanced assessment.
1: Thank you. And. Um we actually have the second question. Um, So from the same professor, uh, how would you address President Biden's recent statement after his lengthy phone call with President Xi that in essence, he would not pressure China over their internal policies, specifically mentioning uh, the Uyghurs and the protesters in Hong Kong?
0: Well, maybe I didn't see the readout of that call, and um, I I should go um, look at that. Um, If if he did say that, I think that's the wrong um, approach. Uh, I think what's happening uh, internally in China is um, uh, a a humanitarian tragedy, the genocide, obviously, in in Shenzhen. Um, And um, uh, not, not only that, I think it shows that China does see this as a vulnerability. And so two points here, um, I, I think I think this is um, an opportunity um, for the United States, um, and it's not just the United States that's worried about this, uh, European allies, other democracies are worried about this, and so if we want to rally um, coalitions um, against China, I think this is an important issue. The Europeans don't feel the military threat as much, but many European officials I talk to are very much concerned about what's going on in Xinjiang, and so we can um uh, you know, not not only should we um, address it in its own right, but I think it's a, an advantage um, for us in building alliances. Uh, and then the, also, this is where China is um, is vulnerable. They're worried about their internal um, security. Uh, China has no um, com- um, you know re- reservations about interfering in our domestic politics. Russia has no uh, reservations about that. We've seen it with election interference. And so I think we should consider. I'm fighting fire with fire. Do we um, tell Cyber Command to conduct cyber attacks to take down the Great Firewall? Um, Do we tell them to send text messages to every Chinese citizen about some of the uh, uh, corruption and things that President Xi are doing? Um, This is where China's vulnerable. And if we're willing to um, intervene in their domestic affairs like they are in ours, uh, then um, they're going to be quite, quite vulnerable to that.
1: Thank you, Dr. Krennick. The next question is, do you think China should be considered to pose a threat to the U.S.?
0: Uh, I would say yes, Um, and we we see that in a number of different ways. Um, Economically, it is engaging in intellectual property theft, um, um, unfair trade practices, and so we want to address those. Um, When it comes to democracy and human rights, it's engaging in the gross human rights abuses I discussed, but also exporting authoritarianism in in various ways. Um, By example, like exporting facial recognition technology to other um, dictators. Um, And then militarily, uh, it's increasingly posing a threat to um, our allies and partners um, in Asia. Um, So it is a serious threat. I'm not saying we should worry about it. I'm just saying we should uh, put it in perspective. Uh, that um, uh, you know, we're we're stronger than many people appreciate. China's weaker, I think, than many people appreciate, and we're well positioned to prevail uh, in this competition.
1: Thank you. The next question is: ability to adapt to changing circumstances is key over long time lines in word resilience. Please comment on rigidity versus resilience as critical, and how does this fit with your argument?
0: It's a good point. I I think this is one of democracy's advantages. Uh, We are more resilient uh, and adaptable. Uh, We have uh, enormous capacity for self-renewal. Yes, we have challenges, but uh, we recognize them uh, and and we uh, try to address them. I think we've um, uh, seen that. Um, Autocracies, I think, have a harder time uh, with that kind of adjustment. Uh, They're not as um, reflective uh, about, um, you know, they often, you know, just just one example, autocracies often lie to themselves um, because, um, you know, if you're a provincial governor in China and the, the central uh, party in Beijing says your goal is to have 10% growth this year, um, what do you report? You re- report that you have 10% growth, um, e- even if it's um, not true. Um, whereas I, I think uh, democracies sometimes are overly uh, critical about our weaknesses, but it means we're aware of them. Uh, and we we try to address them. So yes, this is um, another one of our strengths, and, and I think on balance, one of their weaknesses.
1: Thank you. And this question is from an IWP doctoral student. Uh, what are the critical vulnerabilities of democracies in your view? We have observed China and Russia subversive uh, attacks on the legitimacy of our democratic institutions.
0: Yeah, good question. Um, So I wouldn't wanna present this as democracies are all um, sunshine and and autocracies, um, you know, all all, um, weaknesses. Democracies have our weaknesses too, of of course. I mean, autocracies do have uh, strengths. Uh, And so one of the weaknesses uh, since uh, time immemorial, I think is that democracies are more open to outside penetration. Uh, And so I talk about this at the uh, uh, mountain pass at Thermopylae as one way that uh, the Persians were able to kind of infiltrate uh, the democracies and uh, tie a direct line to that and Russian election interference in 2016. Um, So yes, it's true we are more open to um, uh, outside uh, interference. On the other hand, going back to the previous point, we are more resilient to it. I mean, we're so awash in information already. It's not clear that Russia's um, Facebook posts and things had a decisive influence uh, on the election. Uh, on the other hand, it's, it's harder to penetrate autocratic societies, but they are more brittle uh, in this way. And um, in the seven rivalries I look at, I think um, five of the seven end in um, autocratic, the autocratic system collapsing or having a regime change or a coup or civil war in one way um, or another. And so I do think that's a likely way that this uh, ends, that um, Putinism or, or uh, the CCP come to an end. Uh, and so while we're more open Um, uh, Our domestic systems are more open, they're more resilient, uh, their systems are more fragile.
1: Thank you. And the next question is, what about China's and Russia's ownership of U.S. assets? Does that pose a possible problem?
0: Uh, It does. And, um, you know, the United States has a, a system in place for reviewing foreign investments in the United States, the CFIUS process committee on the foreign investment in the United States. Uh, and so we've gotten better over the past few years of recognizing uh, some of the Chinese investments uh, that are uh, worrying, uh, and um, uh, we've done a good job of um, um, identifying some of those and preventing them. There's there's more work to be done, uh, but um, I think one of the areas where we can really improve here is by working with our allies. Um, so many of our allies don't have similar uh, rules on the books, and so I think working with them. Uh, to identify what are the critical technology areas or national security areas where China's investing in, in your economy, and can we uh, work with you to put laws on the books to make that uh, impossible? Um, essentially, um, you know, one of the ideas I've called for in some other work is, is a democratic technology alliance of leading democracies, working together on some of these critical technology issues and um, preventing uh, Chinese uh, investment in sensitive areas would be a part of that.
1: Thank you. The next question is, do you think the fact that China's rise has led some to question whether their state-led development development model is superior to an open economic system represents a global shift in soft power that the West needs to be concerned about?
0: Yes, and and I was concerned about it, and it's part of the reason that I decided to write this book, uh, that I think um, many people, including in the West, thought that maybe China has the better system. Uh, and um, I, you know, I think there's enormous evidence, uh, social science research, 2,500 years of history uh, to suggest no that they no they don't. And so I think um, getting that message out um, is important. Um, and I did um, uh, you know, the Biden administration has talked about um, uh, the importance of democracy and seeing this competition through a democracy versus autocracy lens. Uh, and I think that is um, I think that is a helpful lens uh, to view it through and to go to. Uh, countries in the developing world and say, you know, really, which system do you think is better? Now, for many would-be autocrats, I I can see how they'd like the Chinese system because it allows them to remain in power. Um, But if they truly want uh, their countries to be successful, to be wealthy, uh, and to be powerful, uh, I think the uh, open market uh, democratic model uh, has shown itself to be uh, quite successful uh, throughout human history.
1: Thank you. And the next question is from a student in the Netherlands uh, studying international relations. Uh, so her question is, how do you think the recent situation in the U.S. with people storming the capital and general skepticism in democracy affects the position of the U.S. as a global hegemon and the possible prevalence of the U.S. in these tensions with China and Russia?
0: Yeah, great question. And thanks for um, listening in. If you um, read the book. Um, you'll see I have this chapter on the, the Dutch Republic, which is uh, really uh, remarkable. I have a newfound appreciation for what uh, the Dutch accomplished in the 1600s. Um, and, uh, and I know some of my friends at the Dutch Embassy in Washington have, have read my book and, and, and liked it. Um, but the question is, is a, a good one. I think there is no question that the January 6th um, attacks tarnished uh, the U.S. Uh, image. Uh, led people to question uh, the resilience of of American democracy, Um, led led some of our own people to question, you know, if we can't um, uh, govern ourselves, what makes us think we can lead abroad? Led some of our allies to question us, uh, if we can't govern ourselves, uh, why should we be leading an alliance of democracies abroad? Um, And and let our allies, or enemies use this as a propaganda to look at the United States, look how dysfunctional it is. Um, So I think it did hurt the U.S. image, uh, but I think we will recover, Uh, and um, I I think, you know, we've had similar challenges in the past, more severe challenges, you know, the the Civil War, uh, for example. I think we've often come out stronger, and my hope is that that will be uh, the case uh, here as well, that um, we'll get through this challenge and emerge from it uh, in a stronger position.
1: Thank you, and due to the limited time, we'll just take two more questions. So that the next question is, what do you think is the advantage and disadvantage of the state non-capitalism in China compared to the free market-based capitalism in the United States?
0: Well, China does have um, some advantages. You know, it, it, when it comes to um, making big bets on technology, um, it can um, use the state to direct resources to certain areas, and it has done that in artificial intelligence, quantum computing, hypersonic missiles, arguably has a lead according to some measures uh, in those areas. Um, So that's the advantage. The the disadvantage is uh, how do they know they're making the right bets? Um, uh, You know, in a market-based system, you let uh, a a number of different private actors pursue a number of different paths. Um, You know, one of them them pays off, and, um, you know, you have major breakthroughs. Um, uh, The Chinese uh, government is instead betting on these big um, state uh, behemoths. And and that often doesn't work. You're essentially making those big state behemoths less um, competitive and and less um, um, efficient because they know they can rely on state handouts. And you're essentially discriminating against other uh, companies that might might have a better model. And so, you know, it's working in some areas for now, but I'm skeptical that this is a good model for long run innovation.
1: Thank you. And the last question for today's event is, is it likely impossible that Xi Jinping and the CCP is following Sun Tzu's principles and teachings?
0: Uh, Sun Tzu, the classic Chinese uh, strategist. Um, well, um, in- in- interesting uh, question. Um, number of different ways I could take this. Um, trying to find a good way to uh, wrap it up. You know, I think Sun Tzu said, um, I think, I think in a way they're not. Uh, and it's to their own um, disadvantage. Um, You know, Sun Tzu essentially uh, thought deception was an important part of international politics. When you're strong, you want to appear weak. Uh, When you're weak, you want to appear strong. And I think um, Deng Xiaoping understood understood that with his hide your capabilities, bide your time maxim. China should keep its head down, grow powerful. Um, But President Xi has thrown that out the window, uh, bearing uh, China's fangs, becoming more assertive and aggressive in, in many areas. Uh, and I think um, that's what's um, really leading to the, the world to begin to rally around um, against China um, so maybe a, a new generation of Chinese leadership I, I do publish I published a long strategy for how to deal with China uh, at the Atlantic Council in December called an allied strategy for China. And I essentially say I think this is going to be a generational long uh, struggle I think um, it's going to be hard to convince President Xi and the people around him to take a different course but that I think the hope is to, um, Show the next generation of Chinese leaders that President Xi's path hasn't worked. Uh, it's been too difficult, too costly to challenge the United States and its allies, uh, and that it's in Beijing's best interest uh, to, instead of challenging the United States and its allies, to try to cooperate uh, as responsible members of a rules based uh, system.
1: Thank you, Dr. Krennig for taking so many uh, interesting and important questions, and thank you everybody for joining us today. I'd like to share our upcoming event on March 10th, next Wednesday, with IWP Professor Emeritus Kenneth E. D. Grafenried. He'll be presenting a lecture on 70 years of Chinese strategic intelligence threats. Again, thank you very much, and this concludes our event today.